Well, we'll be in Mark chapter 2 tonight, and we're going to look at verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. And before I read the passage, I just want to note that we're crossing a uh, chapter division uh, because of the link of a Sabbath controversy that is taking place between Jesus and the Pharisees. And as we work through this passage tonight, I think it'll become apparent uh, how, these, how these two instances uh, are linked together as we learn about Jesus Christ. So Mark, beginning in chapter 2, verse 23, and I'll read down uh, through chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, he, speaking of Jesus, was going through the grain fields, And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Well, this passage concludes a section that began in chapter 2 in verse 1, where Jesus is being challenged by the religious leaders. Early on, Mark declares that he is writing about the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he establishes who Jesus is as he demonstrates John's ministry as the forerunner of Christ. He shows us Christ's endorsement by his heavenly Father, Christ overcoming temptation, the summary of Christ's ministry to declare the gospel of the kingdom, and then quickly gets into the exhibit of Christ's power as the Son of God. But as Christ's popularity increases, the religious leaders of the day uh, become concerned about the rise of this man. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, and throughout the, the end of the passage that we read this evening, there are these controversies that uh, come up 
as they seek to overthrow the authority of Christ. And what we've looked at uh, previously in two previous messages on chapter 2, we, we noted that Jesus forgives sins. He established the fact that as the Son of God, He has the authority to forgive sins. And then we notice that He forgives sinners. He came not to heal the healthy. He came not to call the healthy. He came to deal with the sick. He came to deal not with the righteous, but with sinners. And of course, the, the reality is all are sinners, and, and those who think themselves righteous only have self-righteousness, and Christ obliterates that. But as we work through this chapter, what we find is at the end of the first couplet in chapter 2, where Jesus heals the paralytic and is dealing with the unbelief of, of the religious leaders, the people at the end of that passage in verse 12, they leave, they're amazed, and they're glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. And then in verse 18, as things progress, we find that the people are questioning Jesus. The people came to Him and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So there's they're glorifying God, they're amazed, now they're questioning God, they're questioning Christ, and then by the end of this section in verse 6, there's just open hostility against Christ as the Pharisees go out and immediately hold counsel with the Herodians against Christ how to destroy Him. There's an escalation in the opposition of against Christ. Now, what's happening here? Why? Why does the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, why is there so much opposition against Him so that early in His ministry, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are plotting to destroy Him, to eliminate Him? And when we work in reverse through the passage before us tonight, we find that, that the catalyst was a question about the Sabbath day. The disciples are plucking grain, and in verse 24, the Pharisees are saying, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And in our minds, we think, well, what's the big deal about the Sabbath day that, that the ensuing discussion would lead to the Pharisees seeking to destroy Christ. I mean, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to pull off heads of grain and rub them in your hand and pop them in your mouth. What's the big deal here? Well, for the Jews, and particularly for the religious leaders and the Pharisees, the Sabbath was one of the ways that they assumed that they could get to God. By a strict adherence to regulations, it was their assumption that they could be brought into fellowship with God who rested from His work on the Sabbath. And so in order to 
to come into fellowship with God who rested from his work on the Sabbath, it was their thinking that they had to establish regulations that would prohibit any kind of work on the Sabbath day so that they could get to God through those regulations. So they had about 39 categories of regulations, and those regulations uh, included things like you're not allowed to sew more than one stitch on the Sabbath day. You can't write more than one letter on the Sabbath day because that's work. You can't walk more than 3,000 feet because that's traveling. You can't take an egg and put it in the hot sand on the Sabbath day because it might get boiled and that would be cooking or hard-boiled, whatever happens to an egg in hot sand. And on and on and on. And even, even regarding disasters that would happen. If a building would collapse, you were welcome to remove the rubble and pull out someone who was alive. But if there were people who had died, you had to leave them until the Sabbath was over. Or if someone was injured on the Sabbath day, you you could treat them in order to keep them from dying but not in order to facilitate their healing. So, for example, if a foot or a hand were out of joint, you couldn't set that foot or hand on the Sabbath day because it was not a life-threatening condition and it would be considered as work. And therefore, it would be an obstacle to your fellowship with God who ceased from work on the Sabbath day. This is how they thought about the Sabbath. And so when the disciples and Jesus are going through the grain fields and the disciples are pulling off heads of grain, I mean, they're harvesting, they're threshing, they're they're making a meal, they're breaking all kinds of Sabbath regulations. And, and, and they're doing it under the authority of this person who claims to forgive sin, who's demonstrated that he has power to heal, who, who has already attacked their religious system by saying, look, old, old wineskins can't take new wine. And now, and, and now he's attacking one of their very pinnacles of their self-righteousness, their Sabbath regulations. How dare he? But what we have, what we have in this passage, and, and I think as we work through it, it will unfold very clearly for us. We, we have the extension of what's been taking place all throughout the Scriptures from the very beginning. From creation, God has poured out His abundance on His creation and on, on people. Right? We, we were created for His glory. Uh, 
We were created to glorify and enjoy him forever, and God has given us an abundance of supply for everything we need to do that. He gave Adam and Eve a perfectly created world with everything they need and, and, and the, the ability to enjoy the whole garden with the exception of one tree. Our, our God is generous. Our God pours out generously his abundance. He, he gives grain to sustain life. But from the fall, Satan has attempted to minimize God and to restrict our thinking about the generosity of God. That's, that's what he did with Eve in that first point of temptation. And so when, when any false religion comes, when any false structures come, they always have the characteristic of restricting the abundance of the generosity of God. But when Christ comes, Christ in his preeminence, he, he liberates you to rejoice in the abundance of God's generosity. And, and this is what the conflict in this passage is. There's the abundance of our heavenly Father, and there's the restrictive policies of false religion, and it's in conflict with the very glory and the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to liberate us from sin and, and to liberate us from falsehood, from deception, all of which are from the devil himself. And so we're going to look at this passage through three main heads this evening. And, and each one will pull from the whole of the passage as, as, we, develop, as we develop this passage in, in a thematic sense this evening. First of all, we're going to look at the abundant generosity of your heavenly Father. The abundant generosity of your heavenly Father. We see this early on in the supply of daily food. How, how, how abundant is the generosity of the heavenly Father? Well, your heavenly Father supplies daily food. And when we see this in the simplicity of what's happening in, in verse 23, they're going through the grain fields, and, and as they make their way, his disciples begin to pluck heads of grain. They're, they're eating what they need for their sustenance, and this was within, within the boundaries of the law that God had established in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25. It, it, God commanded that those who own fields were to allow people to, to pick from those fields as they walked by. They couldn't come in and, you know, harvest someone's field, but they were welcome to take, to take what they needed uh, to sustain their life as they passed through. And the Lord is the one who makes the grain to grow. Turn back in your Bibles all the way to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. This is right after the flood. And after the flood, 
God makes a promise to Noah. And we call this the Noahic covenant. And look at verse 20. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease." Now, what's the significance of of that promise? Well, back in Genesis 3, when man fell, God promised that there would be redemption through the seed of the woman, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Well, in order for generation after generation after generation after generation of people to exist, to ultimately fulfill that promise, to ultimately have the seed of the woman crush the serpent's head, what does every single generation need to exist? Food. And so God promises, even though man is wicked, I'm going to make a promise not on what man deserves, but based on my faithfulness to my promise that there will be season after season after season. I will supply what man needs so that my promises will be fulfilled. And and all of humanity benefits from the generosity of God and His promise fulfillment of his promises. On our way back to Mark, let's go to Psalms, Psalm 65. Psalm 65 is a psalm of praise. Begins with an exhortation to praise the Lord because he is worthy of praise. Praises do him. But in verse 9, the psalmist picks up and rejoices in the abundance of God's provision. Psalm 65, verse 9. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. That's praise for the abundance of God's provision and giving food to His whole creation. 
Your heavenly Father supplies daily food just like He promised, season after season, year after year, generation after generation. And the disciples are enjoying the abundance of God's provision for them. But our heavenly Father not only provides and supplies our daily food, He makes provision for rest. We're weak. We tire easily, right? I mean, we're, we're, it's Tuesday night. The work week has begun. Already two long work, work days, and, and it's hard to stay awake even. It's just the reality. It's, we're, we're tired. We're human. We need rest. We, we wear down. And our Heavenly Father makes provision for Rest In Psalm 127 too, He gives His beloved sleep. How thankful are we for that? But the Sabbath day itself, the Sabbath day itself is, is God's provision. It's His generous provision for, for His people for them to have a day to enjoy rest. And I would refer you to Pastor Don's couple sermons on the Sabbath day as we've worked through the Ten Commandments to fill out the significance of that for Israel specifically, but there is a principle that God gave His people rest. Six days you will work, but I'm giving you another day, one day to rest. This is out of the generosity of God. And, and we find as we, as we look at the law of God, every, every part of the law is for the good of His people. But if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, we have an explanation for what happened and why Israel never fully came into rest. This whole chapter, the first 10 or so verses, address a, a principle of rest. In verse 1, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, and he's referring to the Israelites, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the writer of Hebrews is establishing this, this principle that the Jews, the Israelites, although they had a Sabbath day, although they had a, a, an established rest, that was unique to them as a nation, they, they did not ultimately enter God's intended rest. Why? Because it was a problem with the law? No. It was a problem with their hearts. They were unbelieving. And they thought they had to earn their favor with God. They, they thought they could establish their own righteousness and, and so they never found the rest, they never experienced the rest that God intended. And if you look down in verse 8, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. When the writer of Hebrews is talking about resting from works, he's not talking about resting from stitching. He's not talking about doing two stitches or 1.12 stitches. He's talking about someone who has entered rest by faith alone in Christ alone, and he ceased from his works. And so in verse 11, he goes on and says, Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then he tells us how we can do that. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give it account. So how do we strive to enter this rest? Well, we have to take the word of God. We have to let the Word of God do its powerful work in our lives and and fillet us right open so that we can see the corruption of our souls and then run to our high priest, which is exactly where he goes in verse 14. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Folks, that, that's what it is to cease from your works. It's to hold fast to the confession of Jesus Christ. So God in His abundance, our Father in His abundant generosity, He supplies our daily food. He gives us what we need each day. He makes provision for rest. And, and there's, a, there's a physical aspect that, that, he, that he emphasized in the law. He gives us the rhythms of life. He gives us a work week. But ultimately, ultimately, the abundant generosity of our Heavenly Father is seen in that He graciously restores us through Christ. And the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, they all pointed to the new covenant in Jesus Christ, the one who would restore us entirely. When we're here now in Mark's gospel, everything that the Sabbath day pointed to Everything it established about who God was and His generosity and, and that He would provide and, and, and fulfill His promises, everything that that pointed to it has come to a culmination in the presence of Christ. The kingdom of God is near. Why? Because the King is here. 
And so the very presence of Christ, the one that the religious leaders are resisting, the very presence of Christ is the the pinnacle of the abundant generosity of the Father. And yet they're parsing out all of these rules and doing everything that they can. And when you see down in chapter 3, We see the attitude that they have in verse 2. Here's a man with a withered hand. He's suffering in some way, shape, or form. But they're watching Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. That's their spirit. Here, Here they're experiencing the abundant generosity of God and the fact that he's sustaining their lives, that he's given them the covenants. Paul talks about all the wonderful benefits that the Jews have from God. And they're trying to accuse and put to death the one that God sent as their Messiah. Well, we see the abundant generosity of our Heavenly Father. And, but then what we see alongside of that in, that in this passage, we've begun to hint at it, is the restrictive burdens of false religion. The restrictive burdens of false religion. And we see this in the Pharisees. Verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then in the next account, they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal so that they might accuse him. And when Jesus asked them in verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? They were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. The Pharisees are clinging to a false religion. In other Scriptures, we find that the Pharisees, they they loved the Scriptures. In fact, in John chapter 5, Jesus Jesus said, "You, you look to the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They were pretty orthodox even in their approach to the Scriptures. But like Peter warns in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, there are those that twist the Scriptures. And the Pharisees, when they're arguing and saying, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're, they're referring to their torturing of the Scriptures to all of the tradition that that they had layered over the law of God to establish their own righteousness. And so you have, on the one hand, the abundant generosity of of our Heavenly Father, but then the restrictive burdens of false religion. And and let me just point out a couple of these in, in, in a general sense. False religion is restrictive in that it establishes a comparative righteousness. A comparative righteousness. 
And and, and a contrast to that, we could say that false religion establishes a comparative righteousness versus a comprehensive righteousness. And what sinners need, what people who, who have sinned against an infinite God, an infinitely holy God, and therefore carry an infinite debt of guilt before a holy God, what they need is not a comparative righteousness. They need a comprehensive righteousness. But false religion will never, can never supply that. It always, it always establishes a comparative righteousness. And so it's really important that the Pharisees, you know, have their own KGB organization to watch everybody so that they can point out what everybody's doing wrong and continue to establish their own righteousness comparatively. And so they're out in the grain fields. And by the way, the Pharisees probably had walked more than 3,000 feet to get to the grain fields. But... I mean, the disciples of Christ, they were guilty of reaping, of sifting, of threshing, and of winnowing, and making a meal. I mean, they, they, just, they just completely obliterated the lawful tradition of the Sabbath. And so comparatively, even though the Pharisees maybe walked more than 3,000 miles, the disciples had done way more, and they were guilty, more guilty than the Pharisees. This is the nature of false religion, of establishing false or self-righteousness. It's always looking at other people to find out what other people are doing more wrong than you. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is dealing with false teachers who were attacking his authority as an apostle of Christ. And one of the, one of the statements that he makes in verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another, and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. This is the tendency of the human heart. We want to look horizontally and make comparisons horizontally because because then we, we can always find someone that we look a little bit better than. At the end of this chapter... Paul, though, says this, verse 17, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And a self-righteous heart hates that. It hates the fact that it is the Lord with whom that person has to do. But false religion, false religion always seeks to establish a comparative righteousness. 
False religion also evades compassion. In the second account of this passage, we see that in verse 2, a man with a withered hand, and the Pharisees are interested, and they're watching, they're aware of the man with the withered hand, but it's not out of a compassionate spirit. It's out of a desire to accuse Jesus. They're using a person for their own for their own agenda. <laughs> In this case, to set aside the Lord of glory. And false religion will evade compassion, and with an exception, unless, unless it is accompanied with publicity. Then false religion loves compassion. Turn over quickly to the gospel prior to Mark, Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus in in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's exposing our our heart need for repentance, Jesus says in in verse, in in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, thus would you give to the needy sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you may, your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is establishing that the human heart is fine to show compassion as long as it can receive praise from man. And false religion will look, it'll have a facade of having all kinds of compassion, of raising all kinds of money and being involved in all kinds of, ch- of charity. And by the way, Channel 6 News, why don't you come over and, 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 and just blast this around the community so everybody can see how good we are. Now that's false religion. It evades compassion unless there is publicity. It uses people for its own purposes instead of caring for people out of the kindness of heart that's been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. False religion establishes a comparative righteousness. False religion evades compassion. And and these are restrictive things. It's strangling to have to always be comparing yourself with other people. Your your soul just withers away. It's strangling not to be able to to show compassion on those who who are in need unless, unless there's people to watch that happen. But ultimately, ultimately, false religion rejects Christ. False religion rejects Christ. And Jesus diagnoses what the problem is. In verse 3 of chapter 6, he says to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Verse 4, he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. 
the internal reason for rejecting Christ, the internal reason for evading compassion, and the internal reason for establishing a comparative righteousness is a hardened unbelief. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18 that this is what characterizes those who are unregenerate. They are darkened and they are hardened. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul says that this hardening has come over the, the Jews for a period of time until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But it's a hardness of heart that rejects Christ. And out of that hardness of heart, out of that internal diagnosis, that internal reality, a heart that hates Christ, a heart that revels in its own goodness, the external expression then is elimination. That's why the passage ends where it does. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And, and, and this theme is just is going to keep resurfacing and resurfacing through the gospel until it ultimately ends at the cross. False religion hates Christ. It hates Christ because there is a hardened unbelief. And even in the face of miracles, which the religious leaders never denied, they never denied that Jesus did miracles. In fact, with, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, they didn't deny that he was raised from the dead. They were just trying to figure out how to kill him again. Look, this is the nature of, of hardened unbelief. It's insanity. And it wants to get rid of Christ. False religion cannot tolerate the brilliance of the glory of Christ. It will involuntarily react by seeking to extinguish the source of irritation. And as the centuries have gone on, it's not only Christ, but it's also those who follow Christ that endure such persecution. You wonder how, how much of the lack of persecution that we face in Western Christianity is rooted not in religious freedom, but in, in our failure to really hold forth the person of Jesus Christ. Because when the brilliance of the glory of Christ is seen, then there will be opposition from those who hate Christ. At the heart, every false religion strangles the abundant generosity of our Heavenly Father by attempting to establish some form of self-righteousness so that it can out of hand reject and eliminate the person of Christ. One other passage to turn to in the epistles you know, if we think about our Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If we think about our, our New Testament, the Gospels present Christ. The Acts is the record of the proclamation of Christ. The Epistles are the explanation of life in Christ. And Revelation is the culmination of Christ. 
So the epistles are explaining how this works out. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul has just finished giving an incredible and compact statement of faith that's rooted in the preeminence of Christ. That's how he ends chapter 3. But then in chapter 4, verse 1, as soon as he establishes the preeminence of Jesus Christ, he goes on and, and tells Timothy, now Timothy, this is what you can expect as you preach Christ and as you uphold Christ as as in the church, which is the pillar and the buttress of, of, of the truth, here's what you can expect. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer." What is Paul dealing with here? Well, he's saying, look, the church is to preach Christ. But as Christ is preached, you have to beware that, that there's going to be an infiltration of those who are, who are committed to the teachings of the doctrines of demons. So what does that look like? It looks restrictive. It restricts the abundance of what God has created and says, no, you can't do this and you can't eat that. And, and, it's, and, and it detracts from the glory of Jesus Christ and the fact that salvation is in Christ alone and it's not in what I eat and not what I do. It's in Christ alone. So how do we, how do we glory in the abundance that God has given to us and in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Restorer. Well, let's go back to Mark chapter 3. We've seen the abundance of our Heavenly Father and the restricting elements of false religion. So we come now to the liberating preeminence of Christ. The liberating preeminence of Christ. We see, first of all, as we look in verse 25, look at the question again that the, that the Pharisees raise. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now look at Jesus' response. He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's doing something that he does very frequently in the Gospels. He's going to Scripture and interpreting it. We see the liberating preeminence of Christ, first of all, in the fact that Christ is the preeminent interpreter of Scripture. 
How does he start? Have you never read? Well, of course they had. But they had it read. They knew the story, but they, they, they hadn't meditated on the significance. And Christ draws out the significance of Scripture as it applies to Him. All of Scripture ultimately is about Christ. He made that clear in Luke chapter 24. Peter makes it clear in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. It's all about Christ. And what Jesus does in, in this particular passage, he takes the Old Testament account of when David was in need of food, when David and his men were in need of food. Remember, David has been anointed at this point as, as the king, as the one who will, who will take the throne after, after Saul. And Saul is pursuing him. Saul doesn't like this. So David is on the run. His men need food, and so they come to the tabernacle. The temple's not built, so it's the tabernacle. And come to the priest and say, what can you give me? They say, well, there's, there's this bread that God has consecrated ceremonially for the priest to eat. And it was the bread of the presence. It was put out every day, and then it was taken away, and new bread was put there, and the priest could eat that bread. And so there was the, the day-old bread, and that's what he had. And David, David, as the king, as royalty, he had the authority to say, well, I need that bread. And it was the right thing for him to do. And it was the right thing for the priest to give him that. It was a human exchange a human king, a human priest. And Jesus is making the case then that if David, if David could rightly assess where an exception lay in the ceremonial law, then how much more the Son of God, the ultimate fulfillment of David. How much more then can he interpret the ceremonial law and establish what is acceptable for God that out of the generosity of God, God intends for the needs of mankind to be met. And so from there, he establishes the fact Verse 27, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man. God established this, this ceremonial expression of rest for the good of man. And not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God didn't create man because he needed to fulfill some kind of, of restrictive ceremonial picture. God made the, the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. And, and Jesus says, now, now listen to this. Now, now I'm going to come to the crux of the issue. So the Son of Man, Jesus, is Lord 
even of the Sabbath. The Pharisees, the Pharisees thought they owned the Sabbath. They thought that their traditions established them as authorities of what people could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you may think you own it, but I made it. I'm the Son of Man. I am God. I established it, and I am Lord. I am the authority of the Sabbath, not you. And doing that, he sent a bomb right to the nucleus of their self-righteous system and obliterated it. Because there is no form of comparative righteousness that will ever earn entrance to the throne room of God. It has to be gained only in Christ and Christ alone. Christ is the preeminent interpreter of Scripture. And Christ is also the preeminent authority of the law. He established His deity. He's the one who made the law. He's the one who fulfills the law. As we move into chapter 3, we see that Christ is the preeminent restorer of all things. He restores a comprehensive righteousness. And he restores true compassion. We don't have time tonight to turn there, but in Romans chapter 8, in verses 1 through 4, Paul argues that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason that he argues that is back in chapter 1, he established... Paul established that Jesus is the ultimate son of David. He was declared to be the son of David and the son of God with power by the resurrection. And as the ultimate fulfillment of that, Christ is the ultimate supplier of righteousness. And so when he comes to chapter 8, he says, for those in Christ, all of righteousness has been fulfilled in Christ. You can't establish your own righteousness and you don't need to establish your own righteousness because Christ has restored a comprehensive righteousness that only He could restore. And if you're in Christ, you're viewed by God as being entirely complete, entirely righteous and able to access the throne room of God able to have rest from sin in Christ alone. Christ restores a a comprehensive righteousness, and, and Christ also restores true compassion. Here they are on the Sabbath day. Here's the man with the withered hand. He calls him forward, and he asks a question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? Pharisees, you have your rules, but they're very particular. Let's step back and look at the principle. What does God intend? To do good or harm? Well, they didn't have an answer for that. But then he takes it one step further 
to save a life or to kill. In that second statement, he again is indicting the Pharisees. That, you know, they'll say, you, you, you can, you should actually save a life. Right? You, you, can, you can go so far as to stop the bleeding if someone's going to bleed to death. But he's addressing their heart attitude where they're watching him in order that they might accuse him so that they can kill him because of their Sabbath regulations. And so what Jesus does in that question, He turns the whole thing on its head and says, Pharisees, you're you're looking to condemn others. You're looking to establish your own righteousness while at the very same time, you are guilty of violating all righteousness. Your righteousness and and what God has clearly established as righteousness when He said, don't murder. Not only are you hypocrites, in your very hearts you're murderers because you're using these regulations as a basis to turn around and kill the Son of God. It's the nature of false religion, and it's what Jesus exposes. That in false religion, there is no compassion. True compassion only comes in Christ alone. And ultimately, the restoration is in what the Pharisees do to Christ, isn't it? It's in the cross. As Jesus dies... He dies to deliver His people from their own sinful self-righteousness and He pays for the hypocrisy of someone who is a Pharisee like the Apostle Paul who thought this way. And at the cross, Christ paid the debt of such hypocrisy and such unrighteousness. Christ is the restorer of all things. And and the restoration of that hand is simply a picture that in Christ there is complete and full restoration. One other passage to turn to as we close tonight when we think about the Gospels and we think about what Christ has established as He strikes at the heart of false religion, in Colossians chapter 2, again, as Paul is instructing the church, he gives us a sobering, a sobering warning. Paul, throughout the book of Colossians, is establishing the preeminence of Jesus Christ. But in verse 16, as he establishes the preeminence of Christ, he he gives this, this warning. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one disqualify you in insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul is taking what Jesus established early on in the Gospel of Mark, and he's saying, don't, don't let the pharisaical thinking infiltrate the church. Don't let divisions come because of days and diets and all of these things that that we're at liberty to hold but are not the essence of true religion. That are not the essence of following Jesus Christ. And ultimately, they don't even keep you from sin. And then, of course, in chapter 3, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This this ultimately is what Christ does. We have abundance of spiritual blessings from Christ. False religion will always restrict that, but in Christ, our perspective is elevated back to Christ, elevated back to the heavenly things, and elevated back in such a way that that we want to put to death what is earthly in us, and we want to clothe ourselves with compassion like Christ, and clothe ourselves with love for one another out of our love for Christ. And so when when we see Christ in His preeminence, Christ liberates us to rejoice in the abundant generosity of God. Freely we have received, for by grace are you saved. Freely we have received. And so freely give as we exalt our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you tonight for sending your Son to die in our place, to take the debt of sin that we owed. Thank you that He rose again and that He is in heaven at your right hand, that He is returning. O Lord, we pray that you would continue through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ to multiply grace in our lives that we might reflect our Christ in all things, that we might show our love to Christ by showing love to one another and might fully abound in the generosity of you, our loving Heavenly Father. 
Lord, I pray that You would be merciful to any tonight who have heard and who are yet outside of Christ. Perhaps perhaps they're blinded by their own self-righteousness. Oh Lord, we pray that You would take the veil from their face and that the glory of Christ would pierce the darkness of their hearts. We love You. We thank You for Your Word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.